This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to the second series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast with me, Simon Stevens. The plays of Timberlake, Burton Baker have been a presence in British theatre since the turn of the 1980s. Since that time, she's produced work that is as defined by its sense of poetry and linguistic precision as it is by her character's yearning for justice or a sense of her home. Born in New York, she was raised in the Basque fishing village of Cibourg. She arrived in the fringes of London theatre when her first play, the brilliantly titled This Is No Place for Tallulah Bankhead, was produced at the King's Head Theatre in 1978. She made her Royal Court debut in 1984 with her play Abel's Sister. She became the theatre's resident dramatist in 1985 when her play The Grace of Mary Traverse also opened here winning her the Plays and Players Most Promising Playwright Award, the first of the many awards that have graced her work. She was at the vanguard of a generation of female playwrights championed by the theatre's then artistic director Max Stafford Clark, who also directed two of her most celebrated plays, 1992's searing parody of the London art world Three Birds Alighting on a Field, transferred from the Royal Court into the West End and was then remounted in New York at the Manhattan Theatre Company. But it was her play from 1988, her adaptation with Stafford Clark of Thomas Keneally's novel The Playmaker, Our Country's Good that she's most famous for. It's a remarkable play, as searching as it is eloquent in its dramatisation of the impossibility of articulating experience in language and the isolation of the displaced, it typifies many of Wurton Baker's key themes. She claims that it is her most often remounted play because it is about theatre and theatre producers like plays about theatres. I think that while there may be truth in that, it's also a play that is remarkable for the eloquence of its celebration of the defiance in the human capacity to tell stories. Revived at the National Theatre in 2015, it is a contemporary classic, and as a staple of drama teaching in schools, it is many people's first introduction to contemporary playwriting. Her work at the Royal Court continued into this century, with 2001's Credible Witness, her 2015 Royal Shakespeare Company production, The Ant and the Cicada visited the theatre upstairs later that year. She is one of only a handful of playwrights to have had her work produced at the Royal Court in four different decades. She's written for theatres throughout the country, for radio and for opera, producing a body of work that is frankly unarguable. Her most recent play, Winter Hill, opened last summer at the Bolton Octagon. As I enter my third decade of writing for stage, I find the longevity of any playwright inspiring. It is difficult to sustain a career writing for theatre. For female playwrights working in patriarchy, it requires a particular sense of determination and a voice of clarity and force. Such characteristics define Timberlake Wurtenbaker's plays. Timberlake Wurtenbaker. Welcome to the Royal Court. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for that lovely introduction. One tiny correction. Yes. Three birds alighting on a field didn't go into the West End, but it came back to the Royal Court. Um, And then it was as if it had gone to the West End. Right. But that's 
a minor point. Yeah. But it was remounted uh, in Manhattan, yes? Was it uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely at the Manhattan Theatre Club, and it did come back to the Royal Court. And, and uh, so it was. It, Max didn't want it to go into the West End. He preferred it came back right, very to good. the court. Very good. My, my introductions are defined by their errors as often as they are by their enthusiasm. So. I also should <laughs> well, the check, enthusiasm I should is check. lovely. So. <laughs> yeah. I should check with you the, uh, the correct pronunciation, because I think it's actually thematically relevant. The correct pronunciation of your family name which I kind of like give a Germanic hint of Wurtenbaker uh, but is more often in England Wurtenbaker? In England it's Wurtenbaker in France it's Wurtenbaker so you can choose whatever you want. How do you pronounce it? Uh, I, well, it depends what country I'm in. I Does switch it? pronunciations. That's so. really, it's fascinating, that fluidity in, yeah. terms, of, in terms of the, your relationship to language and home which I kind of find in your plays, that even in your name. (laughs) um, I always start these conversations uh, with the same question, and I'll ask the same question to you, um, which is, when was the first time that you went to the theatre? The first time I went to the theatre was actually in New York um, to see The King and I. Um, which was quite an introduction. Um, But I have to say that if you grow up in the Basque country, as I did, you are in the theatre. It was a tiny little village. It was a very uh, spoken culture, and it's full of gossip. So Mm. you are, you know, you're witnessing theatre all the time. But official theatre, let's call it like that, began with um, The King and I and Yul Brynner, a musical. (laughs) And... um, then the, the second play, and I remember these because there was such a contrast, was um, the Jean Genet um, play uh, about the three, you know, the three men. Uh, Death Watch, is that? Death Watch, yeah. that's right, that's right. Um, oh. Which was, uh, I mean, completely <laughs> different, you can where, imagine, in which I saw you, at the age of... Where did you see... The, uh, I saw that in New York. I was at the Lycée Francais, and I was very, very homesick. I had just arrived right. from the Basque Country, and my mother thought it would be a great idea to take me to see something which was written by a Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you watching this on Death Watch? I was 10. Great! <laughs> it's, quite a, it's what my 11-year-old daughter would describe as quite a saucy play. Well, it's very saucy, and I learned a lot, <laughs> you know, very quickly. And the audience was absolutely horrified. You know, I was, you know, I was the only 10-year-old. I mean, it was a very small theatre off-Broadway, and I was the only 10-year-old there, needless to say. Um, I thought it was great, you know, it... it you know, I thought The King and I was great. I thought that was great. Um, mm-hmm. I then sort of a little bit later saw um, Candide in uh, really one of its first manifestations because mm-hmm. Lillian Hellman was a, had been a friend of the family. And that was fantastic as well because that's such a... I mean, that's a gorgeous musical. Right, I don't know, Condi. It's a, a Lillian Hellman. Lillian Hellman wrote the original adapta- book. Right, wow. r- Wrote the original book. I mean, it's, it's yeah. the, you know, yeah, it's the Bernstein, Bernstein music. I mean, that great music, but she wrote the original book. So, so it was, I had a, you know, I had quite an interesting introduction to theatre, yeah. Were you raised and uh, born into a family in which that kind of um, uh, cultural comfort was readily available you a friend of family friend of Lillian Hellman well my parents were writers right so um, they had yeah and, and my father had been a journalist as well and uh, and all of that in both in Europe and in 
uh, America. So, the, yeah, we knew... Um, I mean, we, we were very poor, I have to say. Right. Uh, you know, really Writers poor. often are. <laughs> yeah, as writers <laughs> yeah. often are. Yeah. But writers, you know, move in different circles. Sure. And, and um, so there were all kinds of people around. And, yeah. The, what kind of writing did your parents do? They were novelists. Right. I mean, having been journalists, they then were novelists. And, um, I mean, quite... You know, they were sometimes successful and sometimes not successful. And we, as children, constantly asked my parents, you know, whether we were rich that day or <laughs> poor that day and got the presents accordingly or asked for things accordingly. <laughs> it's good to be able to modulate and calibrate your kind of present requests according to the day's income. That's quite That's a right. skill. <laughs> and it was completely normal. Yeah. And do you remember other writers apart from... Do you remember Lillian Elman? I, no, what? I don't remember her. I um, No, because we were, we were sort of kept out of it. You know, yeah. it was slightly... Um, I mean, it was fairly Victorian upbringing. In fact, it, also, we were in the Basque country. Right. Which meant that we, you know, we grew up completely as Basques. And, and I was brought up by a Basque woman. And my parents were also there. Um, uh, but I, you know, well, I, you know, I remember Irwin Shaw. I, yeah, I remember some people. And, my, my but very, you know, very, sort of in the distance, you know, and um, I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm not going to go through all the people, you know, Orson Welles came, but Orson Welles famously didn't like children, so we had to climb trees <laughs> to get out of the way. So it, it, it sort of didn't endear me to famous people, I have to say. <laughs> No, it's not. It's quite a good blanket thing. I don't like children. <laughs> the um, I I my experience of the Basque country is entirely limited to a one night uh, gig with my band in San Sebastian, which I suspect is not emblematic or reflective of the whole country. I'd be really fascinated to hear what your memories of it were. What's it like, the Basque country? What is Cebu like? Well, the Basque. I mean, the Basque country is a fantastic place it's it's a cradle of democracy famously because they um had i mean after the greeks obviously but in medieval times the basques were had a democracy which had to be respected by the kings of um, spain um they of course have a special language and um it, it it's it's I, it's a wonderful culture, which it would take hours to mm. go into, but it also has suffered from, um, well, colonialism, I suppose. You would have cultural colonialism. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in Spain, of course, there was Franco, who basically eradicated Basque. Sure. And in France, it was eradicated through education. Um, right. Basque children on the northern side of the border, that is, in France, weren't allowed to speak Basque. And I mention that because it had a huge influence on my writing. I mean, I think my first experience of language was that there was a one language that was being mocked and not allowed. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that, I mean, that, that affected me unconsciously at the time, yeah. but obviously very deeply. And the fact that there were two languages, but one was really not respected and the other one was the proper French yeah. language. It's got an innate drama. It does have <laughs> an innate drama. <laughs> the idea of a language being something that's possible to repress yeah. or be illicit or transgressive. Yeah. And I think I, th I, I think that's quite I think it's quite important and combine that with women's language, yeah. which also is you know, has been repressed in some way, and you begin to feel there's quite a bit of repression around. I mean, there's a kind of silencing. And I think writing was probably an act against silence. Yeah. 
Did you spend your childhood moving from the Basque, from Sibor and the Basque country back and forth to New York? Or were you, you were born in Brooklyn, is that right? You were no, born, no, born in New York. Born in New York. Manhattan. Yes. <laughs> That's a very good <laughs> distinction. <laughs> well, it was. No, I'm sure it, it still then. is. It, it was still then. is. No, now it's, it would be more fashionable to be, to born, be born in, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. But All right. <laughs> so born in New York. But raised in Cebu, yeah? What age did you come back to Europe? Well, six months. I mean, my mother flew to uh, New York so that I would be born and have an American passport. Because, yeah, in those days, um, if you were born in a different country, you could not have an American passport. And she thought it was important for me to have an American passport. She was American. She was American. Yeah. And um, so she flew back. She was eight months pregnant. I mean, oh she told God. me it was yeah pretty brave at the time. And It'd be illegal now, wouldn't it? It's not probably. A, a thing. Pro- I mean, she describes <laughs> yeah. it as being about to give birth. You know? Jesus. <laughs> and um, she, you know, then she went into a hospital or whatever and had me. And mm. then they stayed a few months. And then I came back at the age of six months, I think. Right. And uh, I loved what you said at the beginning there. That uh, there's an innate drama to the behaviour and the language and the gossip of the Basque fishing village. Could you elaborate a little more on that? What do you mean by the Or the innate theatricality, you said, rather than drama? Yeah, partly because a a small village, you know everything that's going on, so you have have the whole society right there. Um, And partly because it was a fishing village and the income depended on the fishing boats coming back with tuna at the time, we would get the we would get the reports of those boats that had found the tuna and this would be very important because it really depended on that depended whether people would eat or not wow so that was dramatic in itself and then they would they would arrive in the port and they would they would throw the tuna you know from from the boat you know f- from one ha- you know from the arms to another you know to other arms i mean that's the men yeah. and then the women who were quite famous uh, in saint jean luce and cibourg mm. would deal with the fish would sell the fish and they were public I mean, they, they were, you know, they had been burned as witches, you know, in previous centuries. Wow. I mean, they were absolutely public women. I mean, they would, wow. you know, they would shout to each other whatever they thought, you know, and whatever, <laughs> was, and whatever was going on. And it was quite something. Um, oh, they were called the Cascarot. And um, they were, I mean, they were famous, you know. So, so there was all of that going on. It was very lively and it was very public. You know, that thing of the private Basques are very, very, very private. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's all this public life going on. Wow. So the conflict also of the public and the private was in evidence there. I mean, you had to keep quiet about things for political reasons and you had to be careful about, I mean, people could get caught and there were refugees and all of that. Uh, refugees from the southern part of the Basque country, that is, from Spain. Right. And I like very much the idea of this contradiction between a language which is illegal, illicit to the point of maybe being illegal, but also women who were public and defiant and outspoken. The, 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 f- the female figure of your childhood, the public female figure of your childhood, someone who's in the market square absolutely dominating conversation but at the same time speaking with a language that in other contexts is contained that duality is really fascinating to me and then you go to new york 
Yeah. And then, yeah, then, I mean, we spent very little time in New York when I was growing up. Right. I mean, we, we did go back, I think, for a year and a half, okay. which is when I saw the king and I. <laughs> I Where about, did you go I to school? Four. So, yeah. um, well, I went to the French school, you know, the Basque school, I mean, the local school in Cibourg. Right. And then I went to... Um, uh, then when we were in America, we were just outside of New York um, in a place called um, Palisades, a tiny right, little place, yeah. Needham's Landing. Yeah. So I went to the public school there. How old were you then? When you I were? was four, four and a half, right. five. So I learned English and, and I learned to read in English. I was speaking French. And I learned to read in English. In fact, my mother took me out of school because she didn't like the way they were teaching mm. reading. So, but I, so I read a lot uh, in English. And then I came back to France. Uh, I mean, I think I forgot my English and then I came back to France. Mm. And then I was still at the local school. And then eventually when I, we went back to New York, my father died. My mother went back to New York. I went to the Lycée Francais de New York. How old were you then? Ten. That must be a startling contrast. It was horrible. I mean, I was a peasant girl. Yeah, I, I mean, I was a Basque girl, you know, I was, I was, I, I had an accent you could, you know, you, you could cut with, with, I mean, you don't even need a knife, you know, you could have cut <laughs> it with a, with a thick stone. Uh, I mean, I, you know, be like, I don't know, Northumberland or, you know, something like that. And um, I arrived at the Lycée, which was very posh. You know, my friends were the son and the daughters, actually, because it was a girls' school of fishermen and yeah. whatever. And um, this really posh lycée, and I skipped a grade, which was because Basque, you know, French education, I mean, I don't know, it was quite a good education. Right. And that was pretty fatal. Because uh, so you were in a class with people older, older than Older, you. yeah. And that, that was tough. I must say, the, the, and New York was, I mean, I, yeah, from a tiny fishing village to this big city, it was, it was very tough. It was, and I felt, I don't know, something changed, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was tough. Uh, my mother was a widow, and that wasn't easy for her, yeah. and, 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 and had to work very hard, you know, to, to keep us going. Was she still writing? Was she still out? She was writing, but she had to do a lot of freelance stuff. I mean, she right. couldn't write what she wanted anymore. When did you start writing? Like, even, do you have childhood... Do, I'm wondering, quite often we go to writing, don't we? When, like, I know I did. When I felt kind of marginalised and alienated in the kind of suburbs of Manchester. So... My alienation and marginalisation would be n nothing in comparison to a girl raised in the rural Basque country going to New York. Did you find solace in writing? Did you start kind of writing to explore that? I think I did later on. I started writing a bit earlier because I'd been given this little baby Hermes typewriter, which I was just totally in love with. I mean, oh. It was just this beautiful little typewriter you know, <laughs> by, by my parents. Um, How old were you when they gave you a typewriter? I think I was about seven or something. Oh, my gosh. So that was lovely. Mm. But then um, I did, I started writing sort of a couple of years later, I think. I mean, I was definitely writing when I was 13. Right. Uh, that I know. And I was right. writing short stories, actually. And I, I wasn't writing plays. And mm. I think that probably, I mean, by 13, I was already beginning to be a teenager. Mm. Um, so it may even have been 12. And I was I was reading a lot. You know, I think also you, you, you know, probably you know that, you know, you read to try yeah. to understand yeah. why life seems askew and yeah. what that means. Yeah. So I remember 
just reading and reading and reading. So and it's like search, you're searching for the possibility that you're not the only person who's feeling like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who did you read? Who did you read? I read, oh, I read everything. I mean, obviously I read all the French stuff. You know, I read all yeah. the Dumas and I read, um, I mean, I also read a lot of plays, which was, which was interesting. I loved reading plays. Uh, French mm. plays, and I read um, then in, um, so I was mostly reading in French when I was 13, and then right. by the time I was 14, I was reading a lot in English, so then I read right. Fitzgerald, and I read oh. Dostoevsky, I mean, why, Crime and Punishment, you know, probably because the title made some sense, yeah. I mean, I don't think I made much sense <laughs> of the book, but I remember reading that, and I read Greek stuff. I mean, I read, um, I think somebody at the school library gave me the Odyssey and said, oh, that might interest you. And it was beautiful because it had Greek on one side and French on the other side. And I must have fallen in love with Greek at that wow. moment because it's quite beautiful. Yeah. And I, I remember Sh the book. I, I, you know, I remember that Odyssey. I always think when like you come across other alphabets, there's a kind of something intoxicating about the shape of other letters. <laughs> when the first time you confront it, it's kind of astonishing that language can actually have different shapes. <laughs> exactly, that it can look, yeah, it can yeah. look different and, yeah. you and you know that you can then learn it. I mean, I, yeah. yeah. Wow. So I, and I did learn Greek, you know, uh, later. Yeah. Did you spend your teenage years in New York? Did you stay in New York from that point or were you moving back and forth? Well, I mean, I had, you know, I don't want to go into this for obvious no. reasons, but, you know, by the time I was 14, I went really, really wild. So I was, <laughs> I traveled around, let's put it that way. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I sort of got into this American university, you know, very, very young right. because I cheated about my age. Um, I mean, I lied. And, Did you? <laughs> yeah, nice. I mean, in those days, you could get away with it. And then I, I just went wild for a bit. And Where did so you go I was, to university? Uh, then I went to a place called St. John's, where you read sort of great books. And then I went to graduate school later um, and did Russian, but at, at Georgetown. Um, and I went a little bit, I mean, I spent some months in the Sorbonne, you know. But, but I mean, I was really... So, uh, some months in the... Sorbonne in Paris, oh, right. but, oh. but sort of, un, you know, I don't think, you know, sort of unofficially. I mean, I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I studied astrology. I mean, you know, the, those teenage years when you do a lot of um, crazy things, which we, yeah. you know, which I sort of, um, I think I don't want to get into. <laughs> no, I know, I know. It's problematic, especially when we get teenagers of our own. It's a real pain. But I like the spirit of the explorer. I don't want you to kind of like go into areas you don't want to get into, but it's fascinating to me that writers, that writers, are, you know, were kind of explorers and, you know, the idea that you would be going to university and transgressing going to university young, going back to the Sorbonne. Did you, were you writing throughout? Were you continuing to write or? I, um, I must have been, I must have been writer or I must have been making notes in some way. I think I was writing. Mm. I don't think I was writing seriously. I mean, I don't think I believed in myself particularly, yeah. you know, as a writer. And also it's a dif dif difficult if you're the child of writers, you know, it makes it yeah. that much more difficult. Um, yeah. But I, I, I think I was, I must, I must have been, you know, I was 
I was I think I was writing journals um, right. and I and I wrote I did write for the Lycée I mean I do remember I wrote because I found it later I mean I before I left the Lycée I wrote a piece about in fact about leaving the Basque country and I really took a lot of care with it mm. no that's right and then I I did do I they sort of asked some people to write something really very serious and I can't even remember and I wrote it mm. um, so yes I would I was writing without yeah. you know without that thing oh I'm going to be published or I'm sure. going to write plays or something. Just trying to make sense of what was happening. Trying to make sense and, and yeah, and also the I mean, the exploration, you're right. I mean, I went through all of Italy. I mean, I learned Italian somewhere. And so I hitchhiked. In those days, you could hitchhike. So I hitchhiked yeah. through Italy. I hitchhiked to Greece. Wow. Uh, you know, hitchhiked around England. I'd, I'd, I'd uh, you know, carrying an innate uh, and learned sense of uh, chivalry. I'm reluctant to ask what years this was that <laughs> these were that you were kind of hitchhiking, studying, and it was this kind of the 60s, the end of the 60s. It was the end of the 60s, yeah. yeah. Remarkable time yeah. to be hitchhiking through Europe. I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so was, I mean, what, but what's extraordinary is that you could do it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, there were a few hairy moments, but not many. Right. The. Uh, um, when did you come to London? I came to London um, in my, uh, actually quite late, um, in my 20s. Right. Um, but if, first to work, mm -hmm. and because I had fallen in love with somebody, and um, uh, who I many, many years later married, but at that point mm. he was married. Um, so we had a, you know, one of those big affairs. Yeah. Um, so I came and worked. Uh, I was working with Time Life Books. Right. And then I left uh, and went riding in Somerset for a year. Wow. Uh, I mean, I so I mean, it's it's it, I sold an article about. Um, I mean, I no, I yeah, I had I somehow I got some money. I mean, from working because I'd been working at Time Life in New York. I came to London. Right. So I was writing for Time Life, but I, you wouldn't call that writing. Then I came to London mm. to for this love affair. Then mm. I went to, with some money saved up, went to Somerset for a year and wow. worked with horses. Wow. Which was great. This story of this kind of the early years of Timberlake, Vettenbacher, how was that? <laughs> very well done. Very well done. <laughs> Thanks very much. The, um, it's such, I mean, it's such a kind of extraordinary life to have been raised in the two continents to have been schooled in two continents, to use writing as a means of making sense of this kind of cacophonous world, to be traveling around Europe, crystallizing in New York, writing for Time Life books after graduation, yes, and then back to London. Just tell me briefly about the work, because you dismiss it, your work for Time Life books, but I'm unhappy about it being dismissed too readily. What were you doing? What were Time Life books and what were you doing for them? I mean, basically, I was resting. You know, right. I mean, it was after this very, very troubled adolescence, which we won't get into. No. And then, and then I thought, well, I'm going to be bourgeois for a bit. Sure. And um, the job paid very well, the New York job. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was writing captions. You know, I was. But what um, was the what was what were Time Life books? Well, they. Uh, I mean, they 
were they weren't bad. They did series, right? Uh, and and a famous series on photography, which actually was terrific, which right. I worked on a bit. Yeah. They also did a series on cooking. I mean, at that time mm. I couldn't cook an egg, so I was writing. <laughs> I, mean, I was writing about cooking. I didn't know what I was That's talking about. <laughs> I mean, I was quite good at the research. You know, if there was research, you know, cooking of the world. So I was quite good on wow. the world thing. Oh, but I used nice. to make these terrible mistakes <laughs> <laughs> on the cooking front. <laughs> you know, like break an egg and then boil it. Or, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, um, so that's what I was that doing. Really and then, um, but, but, you know, it, it paid and um, it was relaxing and um, I needed it. You know, I needed to sort of take breath a little yeah. bit. Um, and that brought you to London as well as this that love affair. Brought me to London, and then, um, well, no, I mean, I demanded to be transferred to London so I could pursue my love affair. Right, very good. Which they were very happy to do. <laughs> I think they were quite happy to get rid of me in New York. And then, then I left. I mean, then and then I left to go riding, and then after the riding, I went to Greece to go writing. So I decided then I would just write. briefly about the riding. When did you learn to ride? Well, I hadn't. I actually didn't know how to ride. So I had sort of fallen in love with. I mean, I'd ridden a tiny, tiny little bit. Obviously, I hadn't yeah. learned to ride in New York, and it, it's yeah. expensive, and my mother couldn't yeah. afford it. I wanted to ride, so it was one of those things I always wanted to do. Wow! So going to Somerset was not just to work, but also to learn to, to, learn ride, to ride fairly yeah. properly. I mean, I'm not a great rider, but mm. I can, you know, I can ride a horse. Quite, and yeah. I love it. I still love it. Do you? Yeah. Do you still ride now? I ride sometimes in the Basque Country. Yeah, right. I love it. I mean, I oh, haven't beautiful. for a couple of years, but I, it's oh, it's a wonderful way to go through nature. I loved Somerset. Did I you? mean, I was on Exmoor, and um, you know, I used to go riding on my own on Exmoor, um, and it was I, I don't know something about nature and being on a horse and yeah. Exmoor itself in the winter. Yeah. I used to take people out on rides as well. Did you? And get terribly lost because I have no <laughs> sense of direction. So <laughs> but, they, you know, nobody dies. It's <laughs> always, always good. It's always, it's always good in a job <laughs> to not have anybody exactly. die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and then, you know, then when I went to Greece, it was with the intention of, of seeing if I could write, I mean, taking with, that more seriously. With with the intention of writing what particularly? Do you I know? thought I would write a um, novel, I guess. Mm. Um, I wasn't yet thinking about writing plays. It's in Greece that I started writing plays, though very quickly I realised mm. that that's what I wanted to do. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember the experience? Absolutely. Of, yeah? Absolutely. What do you remember about it? Uh, I mean, I remember it as if it were... You know, yesterday, because we I, I met these wonderful people in Greece, um, partly Greek and partly English. Um, and I had been doing a little bit of theatre because because there was a woman there, uh, mm. Lidi, Lida Papan Constantinou Hughes, who was doing theatre because Greece itself had also been decimated by the colonels. This was again, you know, the early, this was the 70s. Yeah. And she wanted, um, you know, to bring theater i mean to bring some kind of culture back and then i was i was with mm. some friends and one was a designer and this wonderful um sort of dancer actually called remy charlotte an american also a writer and they were sitting around and we suddenly spontaneously said oh well let's do a sort of an improvisation i don't know how it came about mm. so we did this little improvisation and then i went home and 
wrote what I called a Eugene O'Neill monologue. Why was it a Eugene O'Neill monologue? Because I love his monologues and I had been reading them. But I went back and wrote it and then I brought it back to my friends and they said this was great and within sort of a few weeks we'd sort of put on a couple of plays. Wow. So and, and, and when it happened it felt just wonderful, it felt right, you know, the, the, the glove that fits. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, then I thought, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> naively, I mean, very naively. I mean, if, There's nothing I mean, wrong with naivety. <laughs> I can imagine. The, um, and what did you do with that naivety and that determination? Was that when you came back I to London? I came back to London. I right. sent my plays around, my three little plays around. Wow. By sheer good fortune, one of them ended up at the Soho Poly and Verity Bargate happened to read it and happened to like it and she called me in and she said, I'm going to commission a play from Verity Bargate, who many listeners will know from her eponymous award, which is the ongoing and important Verity Bargate Award, but she was the artistic director of Soho Poly. She was the artistic director of the Soho Poly, and she was phenomenal. I mean, she what discovered all kinds... Her? Well, she discovered... She was great. She was just a... I think she had, or she, she knew she had, a, a sort of... You know, that second sense that really good dramaturgs have mm. of sort of you know, sensing something. So, I mean, I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about, you know, she discovered all kinds of playwrights and you would have to look in the, you know, including Barry Keith, yeah. whom she later, yeah. um, you know, married. But, I mean, she right. discovered him first, yeah. you know, as a playwright. Yes. And Hanif Qureshi at that point, And, um, I mean, a lot of a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot. Yeah. And she read your... Uh, the, the work One that you'd written plays, in Greece, yeah. yeah, the forty-five minute plays. What did she do with them? What what, what happened? She didn't put those on, but right. she said, "Write a play, you know, Great. write me a play, and I'll put it on." And she did. And, and which so play I wrote was that? That was Case to Answer, right? Which was your first produced play in London theatre, right? Yeah, yeah? Uh, it was my first um, officially produced play. Right. I mean, I'd had a couple of things at the King's Head, yeah. which we'd sort of oh, including Tallulah Banks, including <laughs> Tallulah Bankhead, yeah, including Tallulah Bankhead. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, tell me about your memories of the play at Soho Poly. What was that like to have the first official? Quite quickly after arriving in London. It was quite Your quick, naivety actually. was rewarded. It was rewarded. I mean, by sheer good yeah. luck. I mean, um, you know, I always think I had I had these great friends, um, older friends, um, Hamish Hamilton and his wife. And she said she prayed. Uh, when I said I wanted to be a playwright, she said she prayed to the patron saint of hopeless causes for me. <laughs> 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 and I think it worked, you know. <laughs> um, so it was it was Leanne Orkin, you know, the, again the wonderful Leanne Orkin, who was a producer for the BBC at the time, wow. radio producer, yeah. a really extraordinary woman, mm. um, directed it, and it was a two-hander, and it mm. was a really good experience because she, Leanne, was very generous, and the actors were very good, um, and. You know, everybody was very serious, and it went on. Mm. It was it was a good experience. When because when I think about my early writing, quite a lot of which was produced at university, or uh, when I went to Edinburgh after leaving university, I was making stuff with mates. Fundamentally, I was writing plays 
four mates and they were, I directed them myself, we put them on, we produced them, it was just a gang of mates making theatre together. That first time when it's outside of your certain, which sounds similar to your experience in Greece to a degree and the work that you made in Greece, the first time that it's taken from you, which sounds as though it was with this play, you, we learn a lot, right? We, it's kind of taken and put into the marketplace. <laughs> about women as strong as the women in in, in the Basque country mm-hmm. but suddenly you're away from the comfort zone of the people you've been writing with and writing for was that a similar experience for you? Or? Very much so yeah. I mean I think you've described it incredibly well actually right. it is it is a real shift yeah it's also very exciting because mm. it's it's um, you know you get to know your audience yes yeah. and that's that's wonderful yeah and uh, and also you learn a lot from that yeah. Obviously. What do you remember? What you learned? Do you remember? Do you remember learning specific things? Um, well, I mean, in in the most crass way, I remember learning where the laughs were, which was what I was really interested in. Yeah. But that's important, you know, how you can shape something, and if you don't shape it quite right, you don't quite get the joke. I mean, yeah. not it wasn't a comedy; it was very serious, but. Or a couple of laughs. But the great tragedian, tragedians use comedy in order to punch people in the guts, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a good thing and to be able to it's learn. It's a very good place, and that's where you, that's where you hear the audience. Yeah. And, then, and then, of course, it, it took me many more years, and I'm not sure, I don't know if you feel you've developed it, to really hear the audience. You know, not to say, not to defend yourself, to it's say... very good. It's hard. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know, know if, if I have. I think that's a really brilliant observation. Because we need to listen to them, and it's the hardest thing to do. <laughs> it's really hard because yeah. you, you, you know, you think, oh well, they don't understand me, but you have to ask yourself, well, yeah. And I don't mean that you make it easy for them. You know, that that that's the other temptation. Sure. You know, to it's not at all about that, but it it's that fine balance. I mean, I don't know how you do it because you have a wonderful relationship with your, you know, with your audience, and your plays are both difficult and. I think. You know, yeah. attractive to. I, I think I'm only able to really learn from the audience after a play's opened. I think during yeah. preview and opening night, I'm so terrified that I don't learn anything from the audience. But sometimes you go back a couple of weeks in, a week in, two weeks in. You, I remember, always remember the great, the magnificent Stephen Jeffries, who's a fundamental mentor to me and very, very important figure in this theatre, this theatre's history. Uh, encouraging me one time to just go and see the play once and don't watch the play, just watch the audience. I remember thinking that's a beautiful and noble aspiration and entirely impossible. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very good, very good, yeah. it's a very good observation. And, and yeah, I mean, I, tr- I think you're right. It's very difficult in previews. I do cut in previews, but, mm. but it's so... It's terrible in a way that, you know, the play has to be on for a couple of weeks and it happened yeah. to me recently with, with the play and yeah. then you see what you needed to yeah. do. And then, of course, it's too late very often unless it's done again. I always think I, I, it is terrible and frustrating, but I always think it also carries within it some kind of metaphor for what it is to be alive in that sense, yeah. that theatre's like being alive in that way. You know, you're you're right. You know, you're right. You have your... You have your regrets as well, isn't it? And then you say, I could yeah. have done better. Oh, have you done know, if only I'd, I'd known that. that. Yeah, that's <laughs> what makes it the most beautiful art form. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You know, you're, you're so right about that because it never, it never stops. It never, <laughs> yeah. It's never concluded, really. Yeah. In the way that nobody on their deathbed looks back on their life and thinks, yeah, pretty much nailed life. <laughs> 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 Tell me about your first encounter with the Royal Court Theatre. 
So that was um, that. That was. Um, oh gosh, um, was that the Grace of Mary Travers? I can't remember. Yeah, well, was did people from the court? Did people from the court? Uh, go to see the play at Soho, Polly. They did. Rob Ritchie went to see it. Now, tell me about Rob Ritchie. Well, Rob Ritchie was phenomenal because he arrived uh, just before Max Stafford Clark right. came. And he was very political. You know, he'd done his degree on Trevor Griffiths. And he right. sat there. I mean, those were the days when people really said, um, you know, women couldn't write plays. And yeah. where the story was, don't bother to send your plays to the royal court. Was it as explicit as that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in fact, don't bother to send your plays anywhere. But, you know, especially, but definitely not the royal court. And he said, hang on, you know. And, and it was it came from his politics, I think. Yeah. He said, don't tell me there are no women playwrights. So he started looking for them, really. Mm. You know, Sarah Daniels, yeah. you know, famously he found and encouraged and commissioned. Yeah. And he came to see um, the, the play at the Soho Poly. He saw everything. Yeah. And he was very generous as well, because at that point, they weren't going to commission me. Um, you know, at that very moment. But he then passed, you know, he then talked to me to other theatres who were looking for things. And yeah. so he was, he was, he was very good. And he, um, I had written new anatomies as well for the, um, for the women's theatre group. And I think right. he'd come to see that. And in yeah. fact, he'd helped me with that. You know, I'd sent him the script. Um, yeah. And then he got me, he talked to Danny Boyle. And mm. uh, Danny Boyle, sort of convinced Danny Boyle to commission me. Danny was, was the associate. He was then. the associate here at the Royal Court. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of Rob Ritchie fighting against the kind of like the kind of lumbering patriarchy of the court in the sixties and seventies. Mm. So you think I mean it's an important theatre and a theatre that I cherish, but the story of that theatre it's all through the men, isn't it? It's Gaskell, it's Anderson, it's even George Devine, and the writers were Arden and Bond and Osborne. Yeah. The notion that it had got to the point by the end of the 70s that there was no such thing as a female playwright, and if there was a home for them, it wasn't this place, is kind of shocking. It is shocking, but it was there. And in yeah. fact, um, I, I remember when The Grace of Mary Travers was on, yeah. uh, Bill Gaskell, who did become a friend of mine, so mm. this is, you know, but there's a scene in The Grace of Mary Travers where this woman is kind of knocking on the doors of the coffee shops, you know, the coffee, yeah. to, because she wants to talk to people like John Samuel Johnson, all that. And um, it, I was told later that Bill Gaskell was watching this and he said, keep them out, keep them out. Oh and I think, I think a lot of people felt that, actually, <laughs> not just... Not just Bill Gaskell. I mean, having yeah. said that, you know, we did become friends. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, and in fact, he sort of assisted. Um, uh, I mean, not assisted, but helped direct the um, revival of it. But um, but but he was, you know, he meant it. So it, the first conversations about the Grace of Mary Travers were with Danny Danny Boyle. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about Danny Boyle as a theatre, because we know him as a Oscar-winning filmmaker, yeah. but he's a significant theatre artist as I well. I think he's a really significant theatre artist, and again, he was wonderful to work with. I right. mean, he was, you, you know, the play's quite shocking. I mean, it's got three different very explicit sex scenes, yeah. you know, one, you know, one with a man, one with a woman, one with a father. I mean, it was yeah. all very... Blah. And, um, you know, he... And, you know, he was a young, you know, he was fairly young at the yeah. time, and, and he handled it very, very well. 
and he was he was great. I mean, he was really he was just great. To Tell work me about with. the writing of the play. Did you? What, what, how did you land on this figure as a, such a remarkable subject? What What was your process for the writing of it? I, you know, I wanted. Uh, yeah, I wanted a woman on a quest, really. Um, yeah. That that's what I wanted, and I and it was it was that's right. I had, I, had, I was living in Brixton, and the Brixton riots, you know, had just taken place. So I was very interested in the Brixton riots. And somebody mm. said to me, you know, it's not the first time London has riots, and they guided me to the Gordon riots. Right. And all that came together, um, yeah. and. Um, sort of turned into a play and I really wanted I thought you know I thought why are there no Faustian plays which is really what the Grace of Mary Travers yeah. is about and I thought well I'm going to write a Faustian you know woman who makes a Faustian pact mm. um, which was knowledge you know for yeah. happiness I guess yeah um, and so that's how I went about writing it. I mean, I wanted both the sort of political aspect of, you know, what leads to riots and how riots can be manipulated. Um, but through a woman, you know, through a woman who gets involved in riots. What was your memory of living in London at the time of the, those riots? It was, it was horrible. I mean, it was, I mean, the, the, the riots were, I mean, it, it was, it was completely racist, you know, because I mean, yeah. the riots were spontaneous and, you know, it was a community in Brixton, you know, it was a mixed, I mean, pretty mixed community. Sure. But when the police came, they separated, you know, we were, I just remember being at a street corner and they, they sort of, told us the white people to go one way you know basically wow. to go home yeah you know so it 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 was um i mean it wasn't horrible I mean, you know it wasn't horrible but it was it was um you know it was right um it, you know mrs thatcher was in power yeah. it was the sus laws yeah. uh and it was yeah. a you know spontaneous reaction against the sus laws mm -hmm. so um well it and the sus laws for for people who are new to that term. Yes, it was it, um, the sus laws was something that came under Mrs. Thatcher, which is that you could arrest people if you were suspicious of right. them. And of course, the people who were inevitably arrested were young black guys, you know, with who, yeah. who, who, with their boomboxes or something, yeah. you know, inevitably. Yeah. Uh, and particularly in Brixton. Yeah, the uh, it's interesting that you searched that you went to history to find a metaphor to make sense of what was happening in that city then. So you're making I, sense of the present tense by excavating the past. I think that's the best way very often of making sense of what's happening because you can either do something which is quite documentary mm. or if you use history as a metaphor, it's a, I feel it's always a very good way to lead to lead into the present. I mean, I don't write historical plays as such, but I like using history yeah. to look at the present day. I mean, because we live, we live the consequences of history yeah. and we, and history is much more, it's very malleable in a way. You can, yeah. you can, um, it's freer, I think. Yeah. The, um, tell me about the court in the 80s. So it was, um, 
you know, once I mean, Grace and Mary Travers was was a lovely experience, mm. and um, um, and reviewed well, received. It well? was reviewed mixed. Right. Okay. Very good. Some people really hated Always it. Always a good time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, some people thought if this is writing, you know, let's forget about it. I mean, you know, John Peter famously, who became later a great champion of mine. I mean, right. one of the nicest champions actually yeah. I've ever had. But he didn't like that play. Um, huh. And 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 some other people were. I mean, it didn't get great reviews, but it kind of sort of shook people a little bit. It, it was upstairs, no, right? No, no, no. It was, it was downstairs. It was commissioned for upstairs, but, but the, Janet McTeer was in it, and oh. she's very tall, so they decided to put it downstairs. <laughs> That's a good way of deciding yeah. whether to put plays upstairs or downstairs based on the size of the act, the that's height right. of the actor. That's right. I think that's a very good <laughs> way of doing good. it. So, um, and did you feel, having considered this place to be, you know, this kind of great place of patriarchy, did you feel part of a movement with people like Sarah? Uh, Carol, I guess, was writing for the Royal Court at that time as well. Did you feel as a sense of being part of a a moment of female playwriting. Yes, yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, we, suddenly, definitely, we there, there, there was a kind of welcome in the theatre for yeah. women, and um, um, you, you know, we almost, unfortunately, we almost took it for granted, you know, that the battle had been won. Right. Yeah. You know, there was a moment when there were only female playwrights and they wanted to do an article about it and we said no, you know, it's fine, it's normal, you know, let's assume this is normal. Yeah. And I think that was a mistake because because there were inevitably backlashes later on. Sure. Sure. Uh, and you went to see each other's plays. You were you we friends did go with to Carol? See, yeah, and Sarah um, and I wasn't friends with Did it Carol, feel like a Carol movement? Was sort of no, it didn't feel like a movement. Carol, I think um maybe didn't want to be part of the movement but sure. we were friends you know yeah. there was winsome there yeah. was um i mean sarah daniels you know i knew i mean we liked each other on the whole i yeah. mean you know we didn't all love each other right. but but there was a it was it was a camaraderie and and you know we can't talk about the court in the 80s without talking about max stafford clark mm -hmm. significant director and significant Indeed. director of your plays uh with a, a clearly a complicated legacy for this theater it's uh, it's very complicated. It's complicated for all of us. For I sure. mean, Max commissioned um, Our Country's Good. Yeah. And um, I had a absolutely very, very good time with him um, when he was directing it. He was incredibly kind. It was yes. a very, very difficult time in my life. And um, when I was very fragile and he wanted the play and sort of did everything so that I could write the play. Mm. Um, I mean, really with great kindness and sensitivity. Um, we had a wonderful time on Three Birds Alighting on a Field as well. I mean, Max and I used to fight. Huh? We used to disagree mm -hmm. and, I mean, normal director stuff. Um, it was much less happy on um, the break of... Much less happy on the break of day, but sure. that was the play and everything. But we, you know, we had a very solid, um, you know, very solid friendship, I mm -hmm. would say. Um, Although it sort of got slightly frayed on the break of day, which yeah. was really not happy in any way. Right. Um, obviously, you know, we have to talk about this. I mean, I then read recently mm. um, the newspaper accounts, which I have to say um, I did not suspect at the time. Right. 
Uh, I mean, you know, there was a lot of sex around. That, you know, I mean, there was certainly a lot of sex around. But And, you know, I knew that Max had women, but I didn't, I mean, you know, had affairs. Yeah. But I didn't know. And I was, um, you know, I asked myself, did we know, you know, did I know in some way? I mean, I think I genuinely didn't know. But I have to say that I, you know, um, full of admiration. I mean, it's not just a question of supporting them, but, you know, full of admiration for the women who have yeah. come out. I mean, um, and very, very sorry about the whole thing. Mm. And I, you know, it makes me think if women had actually been more together, you know, more aware of each other, would it have been easier to come and, you know, talk to one woman and then she could have talked to another woman and then one could have gone as a kind of phalanx of fish, you know, fisher women, mm. <laughs> you know, sort of as in the Basque country and <laughs> said, this is not acceptable. Yeah. And that didn't happen because I think the Patriarchy makes women separate from each other, yes. and that's not good, and that's one of its most damaging yeah. effects. I also think, you know, there's there's basically been this epidemic, you know, I mean, it is like an epidemic of sexual harassment, I mean, as we discover every day. And, you know, there's something about epidemics that, you know, it used to be an act of God, you know, that when the plague descended, it was because God had was angry with the people. And I think women sort of have sort of thought for too long that this these things happen because somehow God is angry with you because you were born female. Um, and the intelligence of these women who've come forth to say, well, hang on, you know, it's not even rats, it's actually human agency, which they've just discovered with the plague, by the way, you know, that it's propagated by humans, mm -hmm. you know, not even the poor rats. Huh. It's always human agency. And, um, you know, that's the conversation we're having at the moment and need to continue to have because it's, it's not acceptable. And I think Max could have been an even better director if that hadn't happened. And um, he certainly wouldn't have been a worse director. So it's something about just one, being allowed and two, choosing to be allowed. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, you know, all I want to say is my memories of Max, particularly with our country's good and yeah. three, three birds of lighting a field, and I never was subjected to sexual harassment. Yeah. But, you know, it's, I mean, it's just a shame. And I, you know, but I do, you know, I think the women who have come forward, I mean, all the women who have come forward have been, you know, intelligent and yeah. brave. Articulate. It's not just, and then you think, well, had I known, what would I have done? You know, like, the, you know, would I would I have joined the resistance when the fascists were around, or would, yeah. I, would I have kept my head down? All these questions, which I think we all have to ask ourselves and actually make decisions, quite important decisions now. Yeah. Do you feel optimistic as a female writer in terms of your relationship with women writing under patriarchy? I, I think it's going to be quite a battle. <laughs> You know, because, you know, I'm now on sort of on the side where, you know, I'm very aware that, you know, even in the theatre, you know, that I sometimes get brushed aside. I mean, you know, in a coffee shop or something because there's somebody more, you know, attractive somewhere else. And I think that the patriarchal, I don't think it's instinctive. I, well, it is instinctive, but I think it's a cultural thing. Yeah. You know, it's still there. And, you know, I've had instances of, sort of, you know, of behavior, which I think is not acceptable. 
um, yeah. of one thing or another. I mean, sex, you know, sexism, it doesn't have to be sexual harassment. I think yeah. that's I think that's the most overt and worst form of it. Yes. But there's there are all kinds of, su- you know, subtle sex, sex. There is all kind of subtle sexism. But I think um, I think women are beginning to fight back. Um, mm. I, th- I think it's quite difficult. I think. There are all kinds of dangers all over the place. Um, and I think, you know, once it's all 50-50, then maybe we can look at things again. Yeah. I mean, having just read, you know, The Power by Naomi Alderman, where mm. she shows that if, you know, if all the women have power, well, they might become abusive as well. Mm. You know, you have to ask that question. Mm-hmm. I mean, power is corrupting and absolute power is absolutely corrupting, as yeah. we know. And maybe we have to think about power differently. I think yeah. women are maybe handle power better because they've ex- they have more experience of not being in power. Yeah. Open questions. Yeah. Important questions, though. But important and questions. questions that it's important to have you articulating such force. I think it's important uh, that our country's good as well. Uh, it should not necessarily be tainted by anything other than it being a magnificent play. Well, that's, I mean, thank you. I hope it won't be tainted because it was, you know, it, it, it was beautifully directed by, yeah. you know, Nadia Fall at the yeah. National, you know, yeah. which, which Max was not too happy about. But I mean, she did, I mean, she did a fantastic and very powerful um, production of it. Mm. So, mm. you know, it belongs to everyone and it's about to be done in... Um, um, at Nottingham, you know, with with a sort of mixed disabled cast, which Great. I'm fantastically excited about. The, uh, I love the idea that I, for too long maybe we've celebrated the 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 beautiful work of bad men. Maybe it's time to celebrate the beautiful work of brilliant women. Yeah, <laughs> it's I think, the only counterpoint to that. And they can be, and they can be bad women, you know. <laughs> yeah, of I course. Mean, yeah, of course, of course. Beautiful work of, yeah. that, you know, of, of angry women, you know. I yeah. mean, the, the, you know, anger, women have to be allowed to be angry, you know. Yeah. Do you remember realise... I mean, when you write a play like that, which has defined a generation, when I said in the introduction, I think it's really true, for, for the whole generation of 15, 16-year-olds, it's the first play they read that isn't, either J.B. Priestley or Arthur Miller or Shakespeare, it has the edge of contemporaneity in its language. Were you aware of that, of, of the play being something unlike anything you'd written before in the time of its production? No, right. I mean, it just felt like, I mean, it was another, I mean, it was, we, we had a wonderful time in rehearsals. I had absolutely, you know, terrific actors who have remained friends forever. Yeah. But nobody expected it to be on for more than 15 performances. Mm. So it was, an, you know, it was a play. Um. The um, is it is there an element of burden in that as well as excitement? Um, yeah, I think it it does become a burden because you know I've written a lot of plays since, sure, and yeah. some of these plays I really care yeah. about, you know, yeah. and um, and and yeah. think are not too bad. I mean, some are better than others, but it it yeah it becomes if it becomes the only thing that you know you're sort of known for it becomes a bit yeah it's boring. a bit of a pain yeah yeah it is <laughs> yeah, a pain yeah, yeah as you, yeah. you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well not you because actually you've you've kept you know you, i mean you had a you know you had a big success but you've also had many many other successes so it's well, not you know but yeah i always think about uh you know i always think that my children could now do interviews about the curious incident the dog in the night time i get asked about it so much and it must be a similar thing it is but what's inspiring about your career is the energy with which you continue to write 
uh, and have continued, you know, your writing now. When we last emailed, you were in rehearsal in Washington, right? I was, I was, What yeah. were you rehearsing? Well, I was I was rehearsing Jefferson's Garden, you right. know, the American production. So right. it wasn't, and I'm rewriting it a little yeah. bit, you know. So that was, um, I mean, that was a play that was on at Watford, and, yeah. and um, which I had, a, again, a very, very good time doing, directed by Bridget Lamour in, yeah. um, in Br- Watford, which was a lovely experience as well. And last year with the a world premiere in Bolton, Right. Yes, I mean that that was great because Elizabeth Newman is is a complete genius. I think. Mm. I mean, I think she's a wonderful <laughs> person. And for me, you know, I come from the south of France, and the discovery of the north. I mean, you're from Manchester. You know, you take it <laughs> yeah. for granted. Yeah. But the discovery of the north was wonderful. Um, In what way? Well, because. People are so friendly. I mean, the, you know, the, the cliche is that I mean, I used to take the train, you know, from Euston to, um, you know, to and then end up in Manchester. I completely mm. fell in love with Manchester. If, you yeah. know, if anybody wants me to work and I mean, you know, wants to offer me a job in Manchester, I'll go and live there. But wow. um, and and you know, the, the, it would be more friendly. And then I would take the train to Bolton. It would be even more friendly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean that. I mean, there's a kind yeah. of ease that, yeah. and. Um, and Bolton is fascinating because it has this history, you know, this, this, um, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the history of the 19th century, and then it's sort of abandoned, and yeah. then it's trying to live again. And um, it was, it was a really interesting experience. And I sort of read books about the North, you know, just to, yeah. I mean, I hadn't planned then to set the play in Bolton, but mm. then I decided to set it in Bolton because I became very interested. I mean, set it yeah. on Winter Hill yeah. outside of Bolton. Um, and that's about angry old women, you know. But <laughs> Did you re- I mean, This is a speculative question and, and the answer might be no. Um, I wonder if you recognise anything in the cultures of Bolton and the north of England, especially outside of the urban areas, from like the Basque territories of your childhood. So, you know, I'm thinking of like the way you describe the women of the of the fishing village. You know, there are women in Bolton and Wigan and Stockport even that that equates. You know, did you recognise that? You I did. An element of I that? think I think I did recognise that. And when I did the adaptation of the Ferrante novels, yeah, um, which were set in Naples, yeah, I demanded a Mancunian accent Great. you know because yeah. i felt that corresponded you know again that 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 strength of the neapolitan women um th- there was some correspondence i mean not everybody agreed with me but i felt that was very very important you know and there is th- there was something there i mean maybe that's why i felt at ease there yeah. and um and just liked it uh and and that you know that it's exciting not to always work in london so that that was a really good experience yeah. and um, we were all women. I mean, the you know, the, I mean, it was eight women in the cast, and Elizabeth, and mm. the designer was a woman. I mean, it was. It what was, makes Elizabeth so brilliant? She is. She's just phenomenal. I mean, I, I, her energy, her kindness, yeah. her love of theatre, mm. her courage. I think mm. you know. In other words, her taste is her taste. Nobody's going to tell her Great. what to think. Yeah. I think um, you know. I, I, I think she's quite. Something. I mean, you know, I would say that because I had a no. I wouldn't say that. A lot of. I mean, actually, a lot of people say that. You sure. know, people used to say, the actresses used to say, well, if you know, if, if Elizabeth asks you to do something, you know, you just say yes. I yeah. mean, everybody, everybody right. says that. So I think I think she's a. I think she's great. Do you have a typical writing day? Yeah, I. Um, 
Uh, I get up. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> Which is an effort. I mean, you have to say. <laughs> It's always an achievement. It always feels like an achievement you know, to me. It really does feel like <laughs> You know, about seven in the morning and anyway, oh, yeah. I have breakfast. And yeah. then I sit, um, I mean, you know, in terms of writing, I sit at my desk and then I try Where's to write. Where's your desk? Is your desk? My desk is on top, you know, is on. It, I have a study on the top floor. Of, of your the, house, of a in, house in, in London? London. And right. then in the Basque country, which is a house we rent, I have a little desk. I mean, oh, I have a little office yeah. uh, also on the second floor. Yeah. Um, and I sit there and then I panic. Is, I think a description of my writing today. <laughs> Managed to get up, panic. <laughs> yeah. What do you panic about? Um, well, I'm terribly insecure. You know, I'm very insecure artistically. I don't think that's news. Um, and I, you know, can I do it? Mm. Um, and then that panic, you know, does anybody really want this? Um, then I panic about how do I do it, and then um, what else do I panic? I mean, mm. you name it, I'll panic yeah. about it. Um, so do you write? Do you write dialogues? Do you do? You, will you start writing with dialogue? Are you a note maker? Or? I'm a. I'm a note. I mean, I'm, I'm a kind of. I sort of make. I make a note, and I kind of try. I, I sort of feel I have to see it. I have to see it yeah. in a kind of arc. Like a shape. I always think it's a shape. Because I, was, I, I sometimes think making a play is like you're searching for the shape to make sense of something. It's, feels pictorial in a way I can't describe really. It, it is pictorial yeah. and and also you you're digging somewhere you know nice. I always think that that you know the play is there already I mean I sort of hope <laughs> it's there already but sometimes you know you dig miles away and, yeah. and sometimes you but 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 again you know what is what is the sign you know that it's there you uh. know what what comes out so it's both your discovery of the play and indeed as you say some shape. I yeah. mean, what what do your shape? I mean, what kind of shape do you? I sometimes think it's like, it's like for me. I can get. I think of structure as just being the order in which the scenes go, the number of scenes and the order they go in. And sometimes it's like I can draw that order as a picture. <laughs> I, don't, I can't really articulate yeah. it more clearly than that. Mm -hmm. But it feels like it's almost like a, the way in which music is annotated pictorially. You know, mm -hmm. we read music through. You know, mm -hmm. notes on a stave, which is a weird relationship between image and sound and emotion. Mm -hmm. There seems something similar to structuring a play, yeah. which is kind of almost more important for me than writing good dialogue. <laughs> but go on. No, go ahead. No, no, because I'm, I'm absolutely. I love what you've just said. I mean, it's a beautiful picture, actually. And I'm, I'm now from now on, I'm going to think of plays <laughs> in that way. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. You know that that's. Yeah. Do we? Uh, do you? When you think about your career and the plays that you've written, the plays that you've made, do you notice you returning to ideas or images that you could say, "This is what I've written about. I've written about this." Are there shared themes? I think. I think it goes sort of in three plays. You mm. know, and then I'm. You know, I mean, they're probably recurrent themes, very vague, like you know. What's the limit of political action? I mean, that, that's sort of what I'm trying to work on now. Mm. Or, um, you, know, you know, yeah, what is justice? You know, yeah. what is language? I mean, I think I think they're sort of something. It's something to do about um, you know what. Actually, the, the question, which is the question for every playwright, I think, is what is it to be human? You know, that's mm. that's 
I'm sure yeah. that's the question. Yeah. And then from there you take, you know, what are what are the what are the temptations or what's the situation or you know what is the human being in society? Yeah. What yeah. yeah, I think that's right. What is what is it to be a human being? Seems like the question we all return to. I think it is, and I think plays, theatre, yeah. does it better than anything, partly because we're watching human beings on the stage, yeah. live. And, yeah. and I think, and because it's public, and I think because you have several people on the stage, you know, you don't have the close-up. Um, and I think all of that is... is is indeed how humanity functions, and 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 also because, you know, as we as we said earlier, you know, plays are never quite finished. You know, there's always something else you could have done with them. Just as probably, you know, humanity, well, unless it finishes itself, which it might. <laughs> there's something unfinished in humanity, and and I think that's reflected in theatre. You know, the possibilities. You know the the bad things, the good things. You know between the angels and the devil, or whatever. But all the possibilities which are realized or not realized. You know, and and plays often have those moments. I mean, your plays certainly do. You know that moment when something's realized or not realized between people. You know between the the characters on the stage. Such a beautiful way of thinking about it, Timberlake, Wurtenbacher. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very, thank, very much indeed. Thank you, Simon. It's been lovely to talk to you. One of the things to Series 2 uh, is the points and questions from producer Anushka. The, uh, Nush, have you got any, uh, got any questions? you got any points? you got any facts well, for us? Um, <laughs> I, there is something that I have a question, but it's not appropriate because it's nothing to do with theatre. It's just uh, Timberlake is wearing some really stylish-looking black riding boots, I think. I just want to know where they're from. OK. <laughs> well, the, the, I have to say they're very expensive. Ah, yeah, come on. They're, I mean, they're not that expensive. They're from Russell and Bromley. Um, mm. but, they look it. They but look I wear... <laughs> no, but I wear my boots for years and years and years. And, um, I mean, I live in these. They're very great boots. They're great boots. Thank you so much. Well, you're wearing an absolutely... The horse rider hat. as well, the important, yep. the omnipresent horse rider. <laughs> Do you have any other facts or questions? Just where did you get your boots from? <laughs> and just that um, Exmoor isn't in Somerset. Isn't it? It is. Oh, let's it take is. that out then. <laughs> I thought it was in Devon. No, it's not actually. Uh, Dartmoor is in Devon, Exmoor is in Somerset. One day I think I walked on Exmoor and ended up on Dartmoor, so I just assumed they're in the same county. <laughs> For my ten tours, <laughs> I was in. I do remember I was in Somerset, but it, one did go into Devon Great. quite quickly. Yeah, but Don't but it know. was in Somerset. I mean, it was Wedding Cross in Somerset. But fair question because I could have got it wrong. <laughs> Thank you. Rubbish questions. <laughs> no, I love the question. No. I love talking about clothes. You know, I mean, you know, it's not supposed to be, but you know, I'm admiring your hat and um, yeah. yeah, it's important. It's important. I mean, it's part of theatre. I mean, it's not. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast. 
If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at rulecourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed at rulecourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the shop at the theatre. Come to the theatre. Come and see the plays. We're at Sloan Square. Come along. Come and see everything. The Playwrights Podcast is brought to you by the Rural Court Theatre. It's presented by me, Simon Stevens, and produced by the remarkable Anushka Warden and Emily Legg.